Would you pray with you, Pastor, for a moment? Father, we are grateful for um, a time that's put on our yearly calendar. We call it Love Day at our house. And Father, on this Lord's Day, we are going to focus on relationships. We pause for one week on the Apostles' Creed to think about what everyone else has been thinking about these last few days. Caring for others and giving flowers and candy and spending time with one another. And Father, even though not all of us are married in this room, we are all in relationship. So I pray that the truths that are found in your word today will come alive in our hearts, in our minds, and draw us closer to you. Father, we do ask that you would give us the strength to minister to all these hurting families, broken families. And Lord, I pray that as we look in the mirror that we know that the problem is not always others. Some of it could rest on us. So in these next few minutes, Holy Spirit, please speak to us. Show us the way. Lead and guide us. Now, Father, hide your preacher behind the cross. And once again, let us minister your word. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Thank you, Greg. Well, I have to be very candid with you in this bridge service this morning. We had 10 people to join our church today. Can we celebrate that for just a moment? Wow. They just kept coming, and uh, it was wonderful. And uh, we're so proud of Emma getting baptized this morning, and we will recognize her and her mom here in just a little while. But as I shared in my prayer just a moment ago, that we're hitting the pause button on the Apostles' Creed, and we will jump right back in next week. But today, I I wanted to take a few minutes and talk about what all of us have been thinking about over the last several days. And we're going to focus on two measures, fighting illusions and embracing grace. How many of us have walked into a relationship with some preconceived ideas about how it should be, and then once we're in it, it's nowhere close? Yeah, illusions. We have to learn how to manage expectations. And when that happens, after we say, I do, and we've set up house together, we have to learn how to embrace grace. It'll go a long way in helping us to have a long, fulfilled marriage. And I pray that some of us in this room who already have good or great marriages, that we can take it up a notch. We can even take it to that next level. For those that are struggling, please know that the Holy Spirit wants to help you as a husband, wants to help you as a wife. And then for those who are widowed, for those that are single again for any variety of reasons, It's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will give you peace today and help you to understand that God does have a plan as you move forward. Melissa Glaze and I have been doing Grief Share for a couple of years, and Melissa now has basically taken that ministry and running with it and doing so well. But those first couple of semesters that we did Grief Share, I became familiar with Paul David Tripp and now I've read a couple of his books, 
And in one of those books on marriage, he says, when the shadow of the cross hangs over our marriage, we live and relate differently. And so, as a pastor, all these years, I am called upon at times to give wise counsel. Now, I'm not a counselor by trade. My degrees are in theology, not counseling. But because I am a pastor, I'm asked to give pastoral care or pastoral advice. I know pretty quick if one or both of the married couples are saved or not. How they talk, how they carry themselves, attitude, those kinds of things. And so I want to tell you that those of us who have the shadow of the cross hanging over our marriage, oh my goodness, how much stronger we are because of that. But can you imagine being a lost husband or a lost wife and trying to make it work? The grind of how every day presents new difficulties that you must be willing to overcome through the cross. So the translation of Dr. Tripp's quote is, with Jesus, everything changes. And there are some of us in this room that that need a relationship with Jesus. Yes, you've been baptized. You've been confirmed. You've been sprinkled. You've been all kind of religious traditions. But yet you've never met Christ, and He could change your marriage. He could change your heart. He could change your life. Out of so many passages of Scripture that I could have started with today, I settled on Matthew 19. If you'll follow along with me on the screen, so familiar to us all that He answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, and what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now I want you to keep that phrase, let not man separate, in your heart and your mind for just a moment. You see, marriage is a human construct. God created marriage. So regardless of what the Supreme Court says that marriage is, regardless of what a state legislature or any other human device would say that marriage is, they have no right to change what God created. So it was God that created marriage. You see, marriage is a spiritual and legal covenant. Marriage was created to display the magnificence of God. And 31 years ago, I never thought I'd have to say this, that marriage was created for one biological male and one biological female. What a crazy world that we live in. The bottom line is marriage is hard work. I mean, it's something that you have to work at. You, you work hard at your job to get promotions and, and, and make more money. You work hard on the ball field to win the game. Why not work hard at your marriage? Investing in your spouse, getting a Ph.D. in him or her, getting to know all the nuances and all the idiosyncrasies that, that, that make up that person that you fell in love with and talked on the phone for hours with. Why not? Work for your marriage, because marriage is hard work. Notice this statement. Every marriage must learn to fight through the illusions and learn to embrace 
the grace. you got to fight through the illusions. There's going to be things you see on social media. There's going to be things you see from Hollywood. There's going to be things that you read on the bestseller list that's going to indicate that marriage should be this way. So it creates an illusion of what you think marriage is. And then you say, I do, and reality hits you in the face. And then every day from that moment forward, you have to learn how to embrace the grace. So how do I do that, Pastor? You have to learn how to manage the expectations. We must guard against becoming illusionist where we are deceived by the three things, the illusion of the perfect marriage. There is no such thing. You take an imperfect biological male and an imperfect biological female, and you put them together, you don't get perfection. You get imperfection times two. It creates even more chaos and craziness and confusion, but it can also be beautiful, and you can do life together. So don't ever think that your marriage, even as the years pile up, that it's ever going to be perfect. You can have a great marriage but you will never have a perfect marriage. It is an illusion. Secondly, the illusion of the perfect mate. Joe is imperfect. I am an imperfect person. You are an imperfect person. There is no such thing as a perfect mate. And we, we run around through our lives trying to say, well, I'm going to trade this one in and get me a perfect one. And then after that one wears out, I'm going to trade that one in and get me another. Listen, it doesn't work that way. We are all imperfect and the sooner you and I look in the mirror and realize that, the better off we are going to be. And then when husband and wife get together and become mom and dad, there's the illusion of the perfect kid or kids. Now, let me just speak to this as a dad. I, I realize that Joe and I waited later on and the Lord blessed us. We now have a 14-year-old son and a 5-year-old daughter and but our kids aren't perfect. All those pictures that we take of Danny now, it takes about 3,000 of those to get one to put online. Because most of the time it is imperfection, it's an illusion, and then finally we catch that smile and we're able to put it online. But I've learned something about a group of people that we know is affectionately called grandparents. Y'all have lost your minds. Man, you think these grandkids... Are, listen, I, I've asked my dad, Daddy, why didn't you treat Kim and I this way? Because y'all were only kids. These are grandkids. I'll be talking about Zeke and a ball game, or I was getting after him at the gym or something like that, and my dad will say, don't you get on to my grandson. And I'll go, who are you? I understand, but see, there's this illusion out there that there is perfection, a perfect marriage, a perfect mate, or perfect kids, and there's no such thing. In fact, God does not expect perfection, but He does expect the pursuit of righteousness. Hmm. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22. Now flee from youthful lust. Now, there's some of you in relationships right now that need to be broken up. You're already doing things you shouldn't do. You've already stepped over boundaries. Flee from youthful lust, pursue righteousness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now let me just go ahead and share this with you. Talk is cheap, but love is a verb. It's an action verb. 
And we must be willing to do so. And so when we pursue righteousness, things begin to happen in our lives. Spiritual gifts become alive inside of us. In fact, I want to take you to a passage that is flowing along with what the Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Corinth, explaining spiritual gifts. And it's almost as if right in the middle of that, he says, you know what, we can't have all these gifts without love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Oh, you, you could have the gift of numerous languages and speak German and French and Spanish and Chinese, but if you don't have love, Bible says you are nothing but a, but a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I've always wondered where Paul got that illustration. Well, evidently in New Testament times, rites that honored pagan deities included ecstatic noises accompanied by gongs and cymbals and the blowing of trumpets. So unless the speech of the Corinthians, unless our speech is done in love, it was no better than the gibberish of a pagan ritual. Do you know, sometimes in marital counseling, that's all I hear is gibberish pagan ritual. They're telling me what I want to hear instead of what they need to tell me in order to get help. It's a waste of their time and it's a waste of my time. So I, I must remind us all that it is the truth that will eventually set you free. Not projecting an image that is false. Especially with your spouse, with your mate. And if I have prophetic powers, understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. You could be wise as Solomon, anointed as David, but if you don't have love, the Bible says you're nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, and I don't have love, I gain nothing. You, you could be the most wealthy philanthropist in America today, but if you give away all of your goods and you invest money in, in these organizations, but you don't do it with love, you don't gain a thing. you got to understand what love is. Now, these first three verses focus on the emptiness produced when love is absent from any kind of ministry. So whether it's languages or whether it's giving away or laying down your life as a sacrifice, if you don't have love, it's in vain. But the next few verses, the fullness of love is described, and in each case, by what love does. It's, it's, it's action. It's, it's things that we do. And it's things that you and I can do as a husband. It's things you and I can do as wives. The Bible says that love is patient and kind Love does not envy or boast and is not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And then in summation, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I was raised under King James Version. Love never fails. And as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What is Paul saying? Love outlasts all failures. 
Love covers the multitude of sins. And I'm so grateful. So let me pull some of these attributes of love and try to help us out just a little bit. Love does not envy as one. We're trying to teach Zeke and Danny, and sometimes we have to look in the mirror and teach ourselves that when someone else gets a promotion, when, when someone else gets a raise, when, when someone else gets all A's and, and you made C+, plus, when, when, when those things happen, uh, love does not envy. We celebrate. I want Zeke and Danny to do well. I, I want Joe to do well at whatever her hand takes to do. I, I want it to be blessed. Every once in a while, Zeke will say, Dad, how did you do on your report card? I said, I did all right. I graduated. <laughs> Next question. I want him to do well. I want him to do better than I did. See, love doesn't envy. And I've been in counseling with families, though, that parents were jealous of the success of their kids. They were jealous of the success of their spouse. They were cutting their nose off to spite their face. It's never made sense to me, but that's why Paul included this. Love does not envy. Love does not seek its own. Now, there are times where you need to be aware of self-care and take care of yourself, but I, I think the Bible overwhelmingly says esteem others better than yourself. To be others-oriented. To make sure that you're doing the things necessary that the people that you're able to influence are successful. Love thinks no evil. There are people in marriages today keeping score. Okay, she did this to me, so now I can do something to her. And we've got this big scoreboard called our bank account that when he goes buy something, I, gotta, I get to go buy something. And we, and we never are able to, to, to find common ground. We're never able to have what it is that God wants for us because we're always keeping accounts. We have a marital ledger. And we're keeping score. Love endures all things. I'm going to encourage you today to outlast any and every assault of the devil that's trying to break you up. That's trying to destroy your marriage. That's trying to destroy your friendship. I shared at 945 service this morning, I, I have some friends of mine that the first time I met them, I was five years old at Owens Junior High School. They have been my friends for 50 years. Now, I don't talk to them every day. I don't even talk to some of them every week. But we've been able to keep a continual friendship going for five decades, and I'm so grateful. I feel as if I could pick up the phone and, and call one of them right now, and they'd be there for me. They were a teammate on the football team. They were a classmate in the class of 82 at West Limestone High School. Now, I'm telling you, these types of things matter. So you can't let small envy, jealousy, those types of things break up your relationships. You've got to be willing to outlast the enemy. So let me give you something to think about. Five things that can destroy your marriage. I want you to consider these. 
First of all, leaving God out. I, I've had couples who are on fire for God. They, they go through premarital counseling. They say, I do. They, they serve the Lord in the local church for a little while. And then before long, they start stepping away. They, they step away from their responsibilities. They don't want to teach a class anymore. I'm not going to be a part of that ministry anymore. And before long, they find other things to do on Sunday. They find other things to do on Wednesday. They have left God out. It never ends well. Never ends well. And I want to encourage you today, if you have found yourself getting a little bit lazy, lackadaisical, lethargic, if you will, in the things of God, you're not reading your Bible like you're supposed to, you're not praying together, I would encourage you, let God back in, and He can make a heaven of a difference in your, in your marriage. Secondly, failing to forgive. We, we touch on this a lot. Some of us are carrying burdens from yesteryear. And, and it's not that when things go crazy, you get hysterical, you get historical. You start bringing up and dredging up the past rather than moving forward. You've got to learn how to forgive because Christ has forgiven us. Now, I know that it's not on an equal footing because what Christ has forgiven us of is so much more of the wrong that we've ever done against someone else or someone has done against us. And if you're failing to forgive your spouse, it's going to cause you spiritual heart problems down the road. Withheld truth. I think there are moments that, that you and I, because we're unwilling to go all in with our spouse, we don't feel like we can tell them the truth about where that money went to or where that time went to. Maybe it's time now to say, Lord, don't let me withhold the truth anymore. I, I want... I want my wife and I to have intimacy. And I'm not talking about sex. I'm talking about into me you see. And what you see is what you get. Unmet expectations. You, you, you have this in your mind of what date night's going to be. And then it winds up, instead of a nine, it's a three and a half. We all have unmet expectations. Joe and I used to have date night every Thursday night before Zeke was born. And there were some date nights that I would pick Joe up and I'd say, baby, we need to run by the funeral home first. That'll kill the mood, amen? <laughs> Honey, before we go to the restaurant, before we go to the movie, we got to go and make this touch or visit. So over time, Joe began to settle expectations of what date night was going to be. And it's not that she settled, she understood the reality. See, some of us are still living in Hollywood. We think it's going to be wonderful and we're going to be whisked away by whomever. And we know that life doesn't really work that way. That's fantasy. That's mythology. So we have some truths that we have to deal with. And then lastly, leftovers. I give all of my time and treasure to my job or to my kids. And then there's nothing left over for the husband and or the wife. You do that long enough, you'll need to have a conversation or two. You'll need to have a come to meet with Jesus time. Because over time, that'll wear thin when all you do is give leftovers. Now, this is just a sampling, but hear me out. Grace does not ignore offenses. So you don't sweep it under the carpet because it just gets uglier and meaner and bigger somewhere down the road. You need to deal with it. So grace does not ignore the offense, but grace overcomes the offense. Because grace is unmerited favor. 
And if I'm willing to give that to a total stranger, why shouldn't I give that to my wife? Why shouldn't I give that to my children, to those that I love the most? So what can we shoot for? I believe that within our realm of expectations and boundaries, we should be able to shoot for a grace-filled marriage. I think that pleases the Lord. Now, you need to have a marriage, though, where there can be correction, where there can be challenge, and also sanctification. It means that you can tell the truth. It means you can share with your spouse some of those deeper and darker things that you would never share with another person on the planet, not even your therapist, but you will share them with the one gift that God has given you until death do you part. So how can a grace-filled marriage start with a new heart? Let me give you a text of Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 11. The Bible says, And I will give them one heart and a new spirit, I will put within them, and I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh. You ever been around a hard-hearted person? I have. I've had to counsel many of them over the years. Joel, will you talk to my husband? Parents, will you talk to my kid? Will will you help me to help them? I'll do my best. But there are times when people have a heart of stone. But then it says that God will remove the heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes, keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So what kind of heart do we need in marriage? We need a humble heart. We need a grateful heart. We need a generous heart. We need a servant's heart, just to name a few. Now, I'm going to give you some homework. Just a couple of days removed from Valentine's Day, as you move forward, and you can even apply this in friendships, not just the marriage relationship. If you're a boyfriend and girlfriend, you, you, can, you can allow the Holy Spirit to step in and, and, and challenge you in these areas as well. Five things real quick. Number one, self-examination. Have you ever thought that the problem may not be them, it could be you? You, you look at a history, you look at a timeline and, and, and you see the bumps in the road, you, you, you see the speed bumps, you see uh, the potholes, all of that has happened. And at every time that happened, who's the common denominator? We have a tendency to blame everybody else. It's your fault. You, you're to blame on this one. But, but sometimes we need to look in the mirror, so maybe it's not everybody else. Maybe it's you. Self-examination. Joe and I learned this mm, 25 years ago pre-forgiveness. I know that invariably throughout a week, I'm going to let Joe down. I'm not going to do it intentionally. That would be crazy. But simply because I am a fallen man and she is a fallen woman and we're dealing with a sin nature, there's going to be times we get our feelings hurt. We say something we should not say. We wish we could take it back. So we pre-forgive. We adjust our heart so that we can forgive our spouse in the realm of the before. We know it's not going to be intentional that that I don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I tick Joe off today? How can I make sure that our night is miserable? And listen, if that's how you're living your life, you need therapy. You need a counselor. But if sometimes these things just sort of happen at random and by accident, maybe we need to learn how to pre-forgive knowing that our spouse sometimes is going to let us down. And then, of course, forgiveness. We exhausted that just a few moments ago. That's granting forgiveness in the after. 
even if they've done it 127 times, we still forgive them. Why? Because Christ has first forgiven us. Colossians 3, 13, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Our Heavenly Father is lavish in His forgiveness toward us. Why can't we be lavish in our forgiveness toward others? Now, sometimes it's pride because we feel like, well, if I forgive them, they'll think I'm a doormat and they'll just do it again. No. I think when you're lavish in your forgiveness and you're honest and say, listen, this doesn't need to happen again. And you have those hard, corrective conversations. Reconciling. I think it's important when when you live a life or a ministry of reconciliation that that you and your wife and then you and your family, including your kids and then in-laws and outlaws and everybody else, that there's always this reconciliation that, that we give people an exit strategy. That when you're in a hard conversation, instead of boxing them in and all they can do is fight their way out, you give them a way out. Joe and I sometime are having these conversations and I will sense that we're heading a particular direction and I give her the out. She does also do that for me as well. We're always reconciling. And then lastly, maturing. Relationships mature over time, hopefully. But if you're 60 years old and you're still wearing your high school letterman jacket, something's wrong. There comes a time where we have to grow up and put away the childish things. It's not childish for a 10th grader to have on a letterman jacket. That's the season that they're in. But for those of us that are a little bit older, and hopefully as we've been married for a period of time, our love has matured. So we know what she's thinking. Sometimes Joe will tell me what I was thinking, and I'll go, wow. And then I'll go, what am I thinking now? I think all of these combine together to help us to have better marriages. Not perfect marriages, but better marriages. We all know Ruth Bell Graham's story. Married to Billy Graham. He was gone on these crusades sometime for months at a time. She wrote, a good marriage is the union of two forgivers. So we just forgave each other a whole lot. I forgave him a whole lot when he wasn't at home to help me discipline Billy Frank. When our girls were acting out and acting up because their father was not in the home, I had to forgive him because he was out telling people about Jesus. Don't take each other for granted. That's what I want to leave you with today. Don't take each other for granted. Our church, just over the last few weeks have met death face-to-face enough times to know that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. Don't take each other for granted.